Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. This has not been an easy time for cross-border investing. In addition to all the logistical challenges of COVID, like limited travel, very little direct contact with colleagues and clients, uh, perhaps except in Asia, and uh, no one in the office, there's quite a bit of political and social unrest as well around the world. So with all that going on, what do international investors think about US property markets? I've asked Mike Hugh, who uh, is the managing director uh, from the Hong Kong-based Gaw Capital Partners here in the US, to share his thoughts on cross-border investing in this market. So Mike, welcome to the AFIRE podcast. Thanks, Gunnar. Thanks for having me. So certainly, Gaw Capital is a significant real estate investor on a global scale. Um, can you just, just to get started, provide us with a kind of general background on, on Gaw's history, investment strategy, structure, et cetera? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm based in Los Angeles, which is our US headquarters. Uh, Gaw Capital is uh, globally headquartered in Hong Kong, uh, which is uh, where, we, where we started out. Um, but actually, what most people don't realize is that the Gaw family actually started investing as an owner-operator back in the, the 1990s during the savings and loan crisis. And that's where Goodwin really started um, working as an operating partner uh, on behalf of other large institutional investors and sort of built that track record out primarily with family capital, um, a deal-by-deal basis. And then over time, um, Goodwin and his brother, Kenny, uh, decided to start uh, Gaw Capital. And so the firm was actually founded in 2005, uh, 16 years ago. And, and since then, uh, you know, we've, we've grown sort of our fund management side. Uh, so there's sort of, you know, I would say there's sort of two separate um, distinct parts to Gaw Capital as a firm. There, you know, there's the, the fund management business, uh, where, which is the side that I sit on. Uh, we've managed about roughly 27 billion of assets under management globally, and then there's also a family office side uh, that has existed, you know, since the 1990s, and and invests, you know, primarily in assets, sort of a very different strategy of a buy and hold forever type strategy, and so that that's sort of the way, uh, you know, it's been split up, and you know, we've we've definitely, uh, I think one thing that we we do focus on that I think is a little bit unique and maybe a little different from some of the other uh, managers that that, that we uh, go up against is that we we sort of see ourselves as sort of um, a, a gateway uh, and hence the logo of God Capital when you look at the actual uh, logo of the firm. But it's sort of a gateway bridging the east of the west and the west of the east. And that's something that we've we've done in terms of bringing, you know, large institutional investors uh, to investments in Pan-Asia through our gateway funds, and then also uh, the reverse through our, our U.S. value-added funds. 
given that you're a bridge, and I think that's a, a wonderful symbol for what you guys do. Uh, one of the questions that keeps coming up as there are different experiences over the last year uh, with COVID and with the pandemic, uh, how are your colleagues in, in Asia and Hong Kong and elsewhere looking at the experience that we're having in the United States as we're trying to deal with this uh, disaster? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, I would say, uh, so a couple of facts that I think are kind of interesting about this is um, we, so in our US, uh, our US team, we're all on the West Coast. So LA, San Francisco, and Seattle, in, in March of 2020, we shut down all of our offices, uh, had everyone work from home um, in, in the US. And the same month, we actually reopened all of our offices in Asia. Uh, so 11 offices across Asia from, you know, mainland China, uh, Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, Vietnam, et cetera. And so we there was a very, very uh, uh, noticeable difference, obviously, at that time period um, as things were starting to get bad here in the States. And I think that, you know, with with Asia, I think one of the key differences is also that which is you know, it's a plus and minus, right? And in, in terms of uh, the way the U.S. is is structured, and and also how um, you know how how people are able to have you know freedom of speech to be able to do whatever we want to do, that actually can cause you know unintended consequences. I think with respect to COVID, and I think that you know not saying one way is better or worse, but I think that the reality is in Asia when people are told by the government to do certain things, they generally will comply. And, and I think some of that is sort of heavy handed in draconian uh, ways and, and others it's, it's sort of just in, in terms of policy. And, and what we've noticed is that in Asia, um, you know, they've obviously done a better job of managing COVID. I mean, right now, all of our offices have been reopened. Um, there are a couple of flare ups that have come back and forth, but I mean, the number of cases are are pretty minimal uh, compared to what what you see here in the states, um, and in, in terms of the number of infections and also the number of of deaths from COVID. So I think that you know our our view is that you know in Asia, and that's also you know sort of bringing it back to like real estate investing. That's also why Ga as a firm we were much more active in Asia in 2020. Uh, we we had acquired. Uh, about three billion dollars of assets in 2020 um, sold about a billion and a half. So we were we were very active, and that was probably that was over 90 percent of our our total activity in the firm globally last year. So it was it was definitely more. We were a lot more active on the Asia side. Well, okay, so you were 90 percent uh, investing in, in in Asia. What were you doing in the U.S. during this year? Yeah, we were well. Candidly, most of it was focused on asset management. Um, you know, we we primarily invest in uh, creative office and hospitality assets uh, here in the states. Uh, a little bit of retail um, and multifamily too, uh, but it's a you know it is a smaller business. It's about three billion of of AUM in the in the states, and I think for us it was really focused on um, you know trying to make sure that we had uh, enough liquidity. We were focused on you know. Um, uh, insuring and stabilizing some of the assets that were negatively impacted, like some of the the hotels, and and then from there, like you know, we've we put out a little bit of capital. We sold uh, a deal uh, during COVID, 
uh, that was under contract actually um, uh, just before COVID hit. So, you know, we were still able to get certain things done, but definitely not, I think, as probably as aggressive as we were in Asia. Um, and part of that's because we've got a larger team in Asia too. We've got, you know, boots on the ground in all these different countries, which I think has been, um, which honestly, I don't know if we would have been able to um, execute the way we have in Asia without having um, uh, sort of boots on the ground in each of the countries. Because, you know, there's been limited, even though Asia has been reopened, as you, as you may know, there's there's limited international travel across the region um, just because of the quarantine requirements. Um, and, you know, obviously they've got um, they've got like contact tracing in place in most of these countries. So it it they they have the ability to sort of like test and and sort of uh, um, uh, dampen the effect of any sort of infections. Do you think that there's been any slowdown in interest maybe from God or others uh, relative to the levels of social unrest and, and political controversy that have been going on uh, at the same time that COVID has been going on? Or do you think that's been less of an issue? I think that some of that's definitely happened. Um, I, I think that if I'm generalizing, I think that in the U.S., um, because the impact here, obviously, from from COVID was a lot more extreme. There were, I think, a number of uh, a number of our investors, a number of our our U.S. investors that really became very focused on sort of managing liquidity and asset management uh, during COVID. And I would say, probably in general, a little less aggressive in terms of putting out capital uh, during uh, during 2020. Um, I think that that also. Uh, I wouldn't say restricted, but it definitely it it sort of gave pause to uh, making investments in certain parts of Asia, right? Just given some of the uncertainty, not knowing what the the uh, the future would look like, um, and and also some of the political uncertainty too. Uh, so I think that that's something that you know we've we've sort of had to navigate. And I think you know even when we were getting aggressive, just to give you an example, like on. One of the big uh, co-investments that we closed, uh, we, we acquired a large Class A office building in Hong Kong uh, during the peak of COVID. And I think now, in hindsight, um, it's looking to, you know, I think most people would argue it's a, it's been a fantastic deal given the basis um, and the opportunity. Um, but at the time, I can tell you, it was, it was actually a very, very tough sell. Uh, a lot of groups that we spoke to, especially here in the U.S., basically said, look, we're not ready to put out any additional capital um, in in Hong Kong or in in, in China or or elsewhere, uh, just given the effects of COVID, because we're still trying to figure out how sort of how deep this impact will be here to our portfolio. So um yeah, I don't know. I think that there's there were there and there were different, I mean obviously I'm generalizing because I think there were some investors that um actually turned the spigot on and became a lot more aggressive uh, putting out capital during that time period. But but generally speaking, I think there was um, some more caution from from groups in the States. Absolutely. Plus, I, I think, you know, pricing didn't go the direction that a lot of people expected it to. People were looking for those those deals, not unlike the early 90s that they could find. And um, they weren't there yet or maybe never. I, I think you're right. I think that, you know, the, the sort of the biggest pricing discrepancy early on during COVID was really in the the public markets, right? If you were 
I know, you know, we, we did a little bit of investing in the REITs, but it's like, it, unless you were super aggressive during that time period, that's where, you know, you had sort of a really interesting window um, during that time period. But you're right, there was not the same level of distress because, you know, I think lenders tended to forbear and allow people to kick the can down the road. And, and that's sort of what, what happened in the States. But, you know, actually, you know, I guess contrary to what most people might think is there, there were opportunities um, in Asia where there was that distress. And that's, I think that's where we got aggressive in, you know, in Japan, um, uh, China, Hong Kong, um, Vietnam, we were able to be pretty aggressive. And, and, you know, I think distress comes in different forms, but, you know, we would, I'd say like, you know, we, we were able to acquire certain assets at like 20, 30% discounts to pre-COVID levels. So it was pretty attractive, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, instead of talking about, you know, the depths of COVID, and we may still be in it, um, who knows, but um, I'd like to talk a, a shift a little bit and talk about uh, a, a post-COVID world. So when we think about a time where we might return to some kind of normal, that's it's hard to define normal, but some kind of normal going forward. What do you think will be the the main changes that we're going to see, or the the, the ways that that things will look different for investors? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that as we look into the future, I think there's no doubt that um, that yeah, obviously COVID's accelerated a number of these trends that were already happening. Um, and we're starting to see some of these uh, get pushed forward. But I think that I, I, I definitely, um, you know, and obviously you can kind of see a lot of uh, different stats on on what people um, what people will think about like office, for example, right? Which is sort of a heavily debated topic of uh, is this work from home going to be forever? Uh, is it just a, a fad right now? I think it depends. A lot of this depends on the type of firm and and sort of the size of the firm and the culture, because I don't I don't think that it's sort of universal to say um, it, like everyone's just going to be working from home, you know, because we can. Because I think right now we are because we're forced to, right? And I would argue that you know while there's some benefits of being able to work from home, it's definitely a hindrance for a number of things in terms of building our culture, in terms of being around our colleagues and sharing, like in terms of the information that you're, you have access to, you don't have all of that when you're working from home. I mean, I can tell you with, you know, someone with three young kids, it's uh, uh, <laughs> a huge challenge with uh, the two older ones uh, doing virtual school right now. It's not a, um, not an easy situation, I think, for any parents with uh, young kids. Um, but I do think that we will see some of this like change going forward when we look at, you know, when you talk about what does it look like going forward? I think when you think about once we're past COVID, once the vaccine rolls out, hopefully later this year, right? We we're all able to get vaccinated or anyone who wants to get vaccinated will get vaccinated. And, and then we will be able to bring people back to the office. And I think that I don't know. Uh, and candidly, I don't know what the, the, uh, the answer will be in terms of like how it'll look like even for for GA. Um, but I, I think that I could see a number of firms shift and say, look, this working from uh, from the office five days a week, having this sort of set schedule, 
maybe we don't need to do that. And maybe it's, and I'm making numbers up, but maybe it's four days a week. And, and we think that there's some flexibility, but we really think it's important to get people together for these sort of team meetings, because I think, you know, we've seen, we, we, we sort of analyzed a lot of the, the big tech firms and, and we looked at this work from home trend. And you can see, like, if you just look at some of the big firms, like, you know, Google and Facebook uh, and Amazon, et cetera. And it, it's interesting because, you know, last year, if you look at the headlines, if you look at what they're saying versus what they're doing, they actually contradicted each other, right? Like they would say, for example, uh, we want uh, all of our staff to be able to work from home until um, Google had said till uh, back, back in July of 2020, uh, all their employees can work from home until the summer of 2021. And then meanwhile, they were planning for an 800,000 square foot office development in Mountain View, right? Or revealing, you know, uh, another a 40 acre tech hub in Silicon Valley. Um, Facebook, same thing. Work from home until July 2021, but they acquired the former REI headquarters in Bellevue, Washington, uh, and, you know, signed a 700,000 square foot uh, lease in New York City. So I think there's... There's a little bit of, um, I, I think that firms are are sort of uh, pivoting right now because it's kind of what, you know, candidly, I think what a lot of these firms need to do to to retain talent and keep, keep their staff uh, happy and motivated. But going forward, I, I do think, and we've seen it sort of in our team. I mean, our team is, I would say, fairly, relatively, um, you know, young uh, across the board. And I think that at least here in the states, and I would say that you know we we've seen a number of our team members really want to be together again, uh, and it's just a sense of like we've had we had actually about twenty people back in the office during COVID at one point when we did our our virtual um, AGM, and it was there was a different sense of energy of having everyone in the office, and I do think that that. Like we will return to some form of that. I don't know if it'll be exactly like it was in 2019, but um, I think that we will see some of those trends on, on the sort of office side. I think sort of fast forwarding to on the hospitality side, which we also do a fair bit of investing. You know, we we've seen actually a rapid recovery um, on some of these drive to locations and that that's actually been sort of an interesting, I would say it's like a, there are like green shoots that we're seeing um, in the hospitality sector. Obviously hotels are still negatively impacted and a lot of this uh, increased um, occupancy uh, is really driven on, on sort of weekend demand, um, especially in stuff we're seeing in the Bay area uh, and in Southern California here in, in, uh, in California, just given um you know, people wanting to get out of their house and, and do sort of a staycation. But but I think that we'll we'll see some of that change. I think the biggest negative impact to hospitality for us has really been around any of the larger hotels that we own that depend more on convention, uh, convention center business. Do you see office net increased demand or net decreased demand? I think in a post-COVID world, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure there probably will be a, a net decrease in demand. Um, I think that that's probably because the traditional office, like, will uh, there will there'll, there'll be a decrease in demand for commodity office space. But if you have unique office space that 
caters to the culture of the firm or is a, you know, for example, and here, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. So if you're in Southern California and you've got nice weather where you can integrate the indoors and outdoors and provide, you know, some of these amenities to your, your employees um, or to your tenants uh, in your building, I think that's going to be highly attractive. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really see that going away if it's unique product. Um, So I think for us, that's really been like our focus. It's, it's not focused. We're not focused on buying like, you know, suburban commodity office space. Like we're, we try to find stuff that we think is a little bit unique and different. And, and that caters, you know, I think that that will, will, uh, you know, be in demand and people will appreciate that um, in a post COVID world. What do you think might surprise people over the next couple of years? I think that what, what uh, might surprise people would be um, the potential impact of, of uh, technology uh, to the real estate sector. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, prop tech, you know, is, has been heavily discussed. And I think there are a number of companies, and we've actually invested in some of these companies, um, where I think that they, they, um, they can make your buildings more efficient and improve the experience for your tenants and, and also, uh, drive operating costs down for your landlord. Um, but I also think that it's, it's hard to know how big of an impact this will be, because I think it's, to me, it's sort of tied between technology combined with, um, potential for the, maybe the, the impact of climate change. Um, but I think that you're going to see more and more buildings adopt technology in a way that actually could completely transform how we use and interact with buildings. And I, I don't know how that all play out. And I think it's changing, uh, depending on different parts of the world too, right? Like whether it's here or, in, or in Asia, um, or in Europe. And I think w- we're starting to see a little bit of that. Um, so I think that that could be like a, a, a big question mark. The other, actually the, the second thing that, that I think could be a, a real um, game changer down the road, but I don't know how long it'll take and how this will play out is, you know, given the, uh, the introduction of obviously uh, of, of uh, blockchain and, and the growth recently of like cryptocurrencies, one thing I don't know, and I think could be interesting is like, how does this impact the ownership of, of buildings in the future? Um, I think that there's, as, as, uh, as owners look to incorporate uh, blockchain, I think that there could be opportunities where there's a way to tap into, you know, the capital markets in a way that people have not done in the past. Um I think so. I think that that actually is something to keep an eye out on. I, I don't know. You know, I think things are obviously it's still in its sort of infancy stage, um, but I think it's something worth paying attention to. That's interesting, Mike. It, certainly, we we were very excited about it and talking about it maybe four or five years ago, and then it went dark for a while. It does seem to be bubbling up. People are talking about blockchain again and how it might impact what we're doing. What are you worried about? I think I'm worried about. Um, the, the main concern I'm worried about right now is the, the, the tension between the U S and China. Um, I think that the U S the tension obviously was, you know, uh, sort of 
I would say it it definitely escalated during the uh, Trump administration, and and I think there's still um, bipartisan support for uh, uh, you know issues of what's happening in China. Um, I think that there there's right now. I think that the question would be what's the impact going forward, and does this result in like you know sort of a dual internet standard, and will there be you know two two different uh, internets, one that's, you know, for the U S and then one maybe with China and, and, and their, their allies. I think that it's, it's unknown at this, at this point, but um, I, I definitely worry about that. Cause I think that there, there's a lot of potential um, friction points that I could see coming up. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, it's not going to be good for either party. And I hope that, you know, I hope that we can manage through these because I think there's opportunities on both sides for both, both investors, right? Whether it's a U.S. investor investing in, in China or vice versa, I think the, the, you know, the two largest economies in the world that are hopefully going to continue to grow. Um, but I do think that it, that that's a big question mark to me is like, what does that look like over the next Let's just call it like five to ten years. When you think about uh, capital coming uh, generally coming from Asia Pacific region into the U.S., do you see that increasing, decreasing, staying the same uh, in the next couple of years? I think that it will. Well, I mean, it depends depending on the country. Um, there's some countries I think that are sort of actively looking for opportunities in the U.S., um, and I think there's others that have had a pullback. Um, you know, groups that have had, had to pull back, obviously, are like, you know, mainland Chinese investors. Um, I think that when you look at uh, Korean, Singaporean, um, I know Japan, Japanese investors uh, have been um, researching and looking at opportunities, but probably a, a little slower in terms of uh, um, moving the ball down the, uh, down the, the field. I think that there's probably... A net increase, I think, over time, because I think that you know the U.S. is still, you know, arguably, uh, you know, the it's the most transparent and most liquid market in the world, right? In terms of uh, real estate and the stock market, and I think that is not going to change, you know, uh, international appetite, uh, particularly I think from Asia. So I think I think you'll probably still continue to see that that grow um, in the near future. So, what are you most excited about? What are you What are you optimistic about um, looking forward? I, uh, you know, I'm really excited about um, some of the unique opportunities that we're doing um, in in Asia right now, uh, especially on the like they're focused primarily on the the real estate uh, related operating company side. Um, and also there's some interesting like prop tech opportunities that we've been looking at, but we've sort of, we've, we've made some of these investments. These are more like private equity type investments. Um, and, and with some of these firms in, in Asia that are, uh, pre IPO, um, in nature, I think that there is tremendous growth and opportunity in, on some of those fronts. And I think that it's something that, not a lot of people are really, I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to it unless you've really been dialed in on Asia. Um, 
I think people have looked at some of these, uh, but I think, you know, it's not, it just given the lack of travel too right now, right? It's like harder unless you're sort of in the flow of these opportunities. I, I think that these are very exciting to me. I, and I think that um, some of these will, you know, we, we believe will continue to grow and they're really um, going to transform the way people uh, move around cities and, and how goods and services are moved uh, around in, in the region. So a number of these opportunities have been focused on um, sort of uh, logistics uh, um, and last mile logistics. But I think that some of these, these opportunities um, probably are the most interesting from, from what I've seen recently. Well, that is um, a pretty good place for us to stop at this point. Uh, thank you, Mike, for sharing some of your insights on uh, the global real estate market um, and uh, how it relates to the United States, both during and after COVID. So thank you for joining us on the AFIRE podcast. No problem. Thank, thanks, Gunnar. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.